0: let's get started. Let me pray for us. Dear Father God, we praise you and we thank you for bringing us together uh, again this morning, Lord. Uh, thank, Thank you for the ability to engage in good discussion. Thank you for allowing us to journey through this history of the church and of art and teaching us through it. Lord, bless our minds and our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so, so last session, I uh, began our time together by, uh, by bringing up something from the prayer book. It was a third century hymn. Uh, that, uh, that has been part of Christian worship, Christian liturgies ever since that time and uh, is still in use today and uh, has found its way into our evening prayer liturgies in our prayer book. So I thought I would do a similar thing today because of the time period that we're diving into. Uh, which is the late Roman, early Byzantine period. At the end of evening prayer, just like the Phosphiloron, the, the hymn that, uh, that we talked about last week, is towards the beginning of evening prayer, this is at the end of evening prayer. Life everlasting. And that prayer was written by St. John Chrysostom. He was a bishop of Constantinople. He lived from the mid fourth century to the early fifth century and is still considered one of the great preachers of the church. He also uh, formulated what we Uh, what the Eastern Church calls the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, uh, which very much uh, still guides their worship today. And as you can see, his prayer has wound up uh, at the end of a liturgy that many Anglicans say every day. So... Constantine, at this point, has become a Christian, taking up from where we left off last week. Uh, And so Christianity is now legal in the Roman Empire. Constantine soon will also move his empire to uh, to the east, set up a new capital for Rome, not in Rome, but in Constantinople. And so, uh, you start seeing uh, Christianity still together, still being somewhat guided together, but also diverging in certain ways. Uh, before, before we start today, though, I'm going to talk about two things that I hit on last week. Uh, one is... Uh, some some of the uh, some of the symbols that we will continually be running into just throughout uh, Christian art. Uh, I know most of us are familiar with the cross <laughs> and crucifixes, and also last week we talked about the ichthus, the the fish symbol that we find on the backs of cards now but which was one of the earliest symbols of uh of christianity when christianity was still illegal in the roman empire two more that i want to just briefly show you uh the key row you will find this sometimes in the background of a lot of art. You'll see it in uh, some art about the Roman Empire uh, from Constantine onward. Uh, the, uh, and uh, the key row is allegedly the icon, the symbol that, that Constantine saw when he was converted to Christianity. Um, and so that is uh, a key or chi um, symbol. That's the X, uh, but it's a CH sound with a girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyhow, and, and so uh, that would be a crossing a row symbol. That's the sort of P shape. Which is, uh, which is an R sound. Uh, and so those would be the first uh, two letters of Christ in Greek, Christos. Um, uh, also, uh, it could be uh, Christos Rex, Christ the King. Uh, and uh, then the stargram... Uh, which is a row shape uh, crossed uh, with a tau cross shape, uh, and so that's just another another symbol, also uh, also very frequent throughout church history, used uh, used for Christ. The other thing I wanted to address, (laughs) here's our shepherd again. Uh, I was asked this question uh, after our our, uh, lesson last week. So so, um, we see the depiction of Christ the Good Shepherd um, in... Uh, in these uh, mainly pre-Constantine artworks, and, and we get two sort of meanings from it. Uh, we sometimes see the good shepherd with a ram on his shoulders, and more frequently we get the good shepherd with a sheep or a lamb on his shoulders. And, of course, those those have different connotations for us. One of the frustrating things is that we... Uh, is that our, our artistic record from this time period is very fragmentary. So we have to do a lot of sort of back reading into things. With the RAM, what we're typically sing and I did I I poured through like five books trying to figure (laughs) trying to find something on this this week Um, when it's when it's RAM this is mostly secular art or Roman pagan art sort of being adopted into a Christian framework and so it seems like uh, the ram, as sort of a, a symbol of the law, is something they uh, they put onto this image that they were taking from, uh, from pagan imagery. If they used a lamb, then, then it was probably Christian created. That might not always be true, uh, but but it would typically be Christian-created or Christian-solicited, uh, at least. and And so you would have the more straightforward Christ the Good Shepherd image, and, of course, we are the sheep. <laughs> the thing about this imagery, though, is... Um, and this gets into what we 'll talk about today. These are some of the images that start to disappear once Christianity becomes legal and why is that because suddenly we can be very explicit about our faith we can we can say uh, we don 't need to use this symbol of Jesus or symbol of these other truth, we could just show Jesus. And so we do. So, so so, the Christ, the Good Shepherd imagery is sort of phased out, as is some other imagery that we saw last week. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, So things that were, uh, that were slowly phased out are, um, are things like, um, uh, Noah's Ark, especially any, any imagery with people whose hands are uplifted and worshipped, that seems to be something that, uh, that the early Christians used as sort of, we, we are signifying our worship. We can't really proclaim it publicly, so in our, in our you know, catacomb artwork, we are going to show hands uplifted. And so you see that with Noah's Ark over here. You see it with the, uh, with the uh, three young men in the fiery furnace over here. And also we start, getting, uh, we start getting less Adam and Eve, less Jonah and the whale. I don't have an image of it, but Jonah and the whale, uh, or Jonah and the sea monster, as they would typically refer to it, was used frequently as sort of an image of Christ being resurrected, since they couldn't... Uh, They didn't want to do an image of Christ publicly, but they were like, oh, well, sea monsters. We talk about sea monsters a lot in Roman culture. We will show someone escaping from the mouth of a sea monster, that being Jonah and the whale, that being Christ escaping from death. But they didn't need that anymore. These imagery... Images lots of Old Testament images start going away, and we shift to these images. something really cool is the first two of these uh, the uh, the Virgin and child image and the uh, and the Jesus image those are the uh, two Those are the oldest images of each of their kinds that we know that we have. Uh, They are both from the uh, St. Catherine Monastery on Mount Sinai, which is just a treasure trove of art uh, because of how old it is, and it's still existing today. Um. So, uh, and after Christianity becomes legal, of course, um, our artistic record goes from very scant uh, to abundant. Because, as we talked about last week, we start having churches built, uh, and the churches are absolutely filled to the gills with artwork. Uh, and to, it just begins appearing everywhere. Uh, uh, Okay. Um, So, uh, now, when we look around the empire and beyond the empire, uh, there are a few things we can know. Uh, the, uh, one, there are various regional churches uh, being established, especially once the center of the empire moves from Rome to Constantinople. You, you, start, you start seeing a lot of eastward spread of Christianity. And you know, it starts adapting to the local cultures. Next week, we are going to look at very Western Europe and the British Isles a little bit and see what kind of shape it's taking there and what that looks like uh, when it moves into the art and culture of those regions. But meanwhile, it is uh, uh, moving throughout uh, this sort of Byzantine area, uh, Syria, Armenia, Georgia, uh, Egypt, uh, Ethiopia, Nubia, and each one of those has its own uh, Christian culture and its own array of imagery. So I'm going to talk about some symbolism that we see in art uh, 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 throughout the empire and beyond during this time and through icons and everything. Some of the icon imagery still exists today in the icons of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. but it's not always standard. Uh, There are differences between those regions. So this is a broad overview, but there are lots of footnotes that I'm not putting in. Um, uh, But on the abundance, uh, the the writer uh, and art historian Robin Margaret Jensen says, after 350, the, work, the quality of work, the variety of context, and the compositions themselves were improved or expanded. The decoration of churches and baptistries—we uh, talked about baptistries, huge things, uh, a little bit last time— uh, gospel books and liturgical objects was fueled uh, initially by changing social, economic, and political status that— uh, of Christians themselves, Th- that status Christians didn 't have before. Christians uh, uh, could not you know spend openly on these things. Most Christians did not have the the wealth to fund these things. Um, and so suddenly this this money, this status, which they didn 't have before suddenly pours itself out into these expressions all around the church. Um, So anyhow, we talked about subjects that disappear, subjects that do appear, um, are uh, pictorial cycles on the life, miracles, and passion of Christ. Jesus as enthroned as king, which is the center Uh, panel here. Uh, It's uh, it's called A Christ Pantocrator, Uh, and this is one of the most common things that we will see throughout early Christian art. Also Mary and the baby Jesus, and portraits of Christ and the saints. On the far end, it's a little bit later, but and uh, because of the light, you can't really see it well. But uh, but that is Saint Peter and Saint Paul with Jesus in the background. Uh, and here's something that is common, and we still find common in art today. Uh, like how how do you know which one is Peter and which one is Paul? Paul is bald. Yep. (laughs) Paul is bald uh, and usually has a dark beard and hair. Peter usually has a fairly full head of hair. Sometimes he's balding in the back, but he has a more full head of hair. And uh, he is also bearded, but his beard and hair are Gray. Uh, he almost always has gray or white hair, and Paul almost always has dark hair and is balding. Um, we'll talk more about the symbolism in, the, uh, in the, uh, at least two in a second. Um, but uh, uh the, These become prevalent all across uh, all across the empire um, uh, and a few of the things um, one of one of the uh problems we start having a few sen- within a within a couple of centuries is uh you know we have these images being made and people start abusing the images a bit. Um, Jeffrey Spear, uh, in his book, Picturing the Bible, The Earliest Christian Art, says the veneration of saints and martyrs, uh, since we can now picture them, Uh, and we know where some of their remains are. He says uh, the veneration of saints and martyrs led to the search for their physical remains or relics, uh, which through the intercession of these deceased holy men and women were thought to have miraculous powers of healing. By the late 4th century, relics were distributed widely through the empire often in elaborate ceremonies and preserved in finely decorated reliquaries uh, deposited in local churches artists produce portraits of local saints and martyrs most notably in Rome where images of saints uh, uh, and martyred bishops of Rome appeared in catacombs paintings, tombstones, gold vessels, and church decorations. So we're already seeing some of the things that really would become problematic as the Middle Ages progressed. Uh, At the same time, this in and of itself is producing a great deal of art from that early church time period. Icons like we 're seeing here, became uh, very much used over over the next you know few centuries in a similar way as those relics would except the the icons you could have in your houses or or at least in your local churches, even if you didn't have a bone from this saint or a splinter from the cross or something like that. It became a way of communicating with these, with these saints in a arguably idolatrous way. A few things we will see in, uh, in these icons. What are we doing here? Uh, one, we'll notice uh, the use of halos. Halos are borrowed from uh, from the Hellenistic Greek culture. They were used in Hellenistic Greek culture to identify. Holy or divine people, and so that's something we start importing into our art. Uh, there are other things that are that begin to slowly be imported into Eastern art, surrounding uh, surrounding uh, Jesus and Saint figures with uh, with pointed ovals uh, and and other shapes that that can come even from the Far East cultures that are slowly imported in. Something we start seeing an abundance of. And here is a difference between how things around Rome and Europe, how things... Start forming there versus how things start forming in in the eastern part of the empire and eventually the Byzantine empire, the continuation of that for the next few centuries I can barely see some stuff here um, but uh, but in both cultures, you see Christ constantly portrayed as king. It usually takes a very prominent place in a church. Uh, like here in the bottom picture, this is above the altar of the church. Uh, this is the Christ in majesty. It's a fifth century uh, picture, uh, fifth 5th century mosaic from, from uh, church in Rome. And let me see if I can point out in the, in the West, in the more Roman side of the culture, Jesus is usually surrounded by saints and apostles and he is also usually Flanked by either the four evangelists or their symbols, and it's got the symbols here. Those of you listening online will be able to see this a bit clearer than those who are <laughs> who are in the room right now. Uh, but uh, but you have. A uh, um, uh, You have Matthew always symbolized by winged man, Mark by winged lion, Luke by winged ox, and John by winged eagle. And those are up here behind the cross. Uh, I don't think you can see them, but there's the man uh, the ox, I think, I think the eagle, no, the lion is there. I think that's a lion. (laughs) And the eagle, I think, is over there. But uh, yeah, uh, it's hard to see in this. But those are typically what Christ as king... Christ's majesty is portrayed as in the Western churches. In the Eastern churches, uh, and this is from uh, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, Constantinople, or uh, today Istanbul. He is always flanked by Mary and John the Baptist. So his mother and John the Baptist are always with him, you, uh, sometimes pointing t- to him. Obviously this picture, though this is one of the very, very uh, most famous uh, renderings of this image, uh, this one is obviously damaged uh, due to uh, uh, this, this artwork being covered up for years. The Hagia Sophia was for a thousand years the largest uh, church building in Christianity. It is absolutely beautiful, and I I wish I had time to go off on a full <laughs> a full session discussion of just the Hagia Sophia. It, of course, was converted into a mosque, uh, and is. Uh, and then, in the last century, was turned into a museum and not used for religious services at all. During which time, some of the Christian artwork was was uh, uncovered and revealed for the first time in about 500 years. Uh, now, as of about a year ago, it had the. Uh, the Turkish government has turned it into a mosque again uh, luckily the Christian imagery that was, that was uncovered, unplastered um, dur- during the last century is not being recovered they are veiling it uh, during, during their um, prayer services there but uh, but it's still, uh, it's still available to see right now. Some things were never uncovered. There's still some stuff that is covered by later Islamic artwork, including uh, inside the, the big dome. If you ever look at the house, it has a huge dome in the center. And of course, we talked about churches being in the shape of a cross last time. The Hagia Sophia is in the shape of a Greek cross. So it's still cross shaped, uh, but the dimensions are equal on all sides. Uh, but inside that dome, if it was uncovered, would be a huge image of uh, Jesus as King. It would be at the very top of that dome. But right now, that is still covered by um, Islamic patterns and an Arabic script. And from the 5th century onward, we also see that Jesus, as we see here in the Hagia Sophia image, his halo... It's made special. This is, this is one of the ways that you can tell Jesus from any other figure in the artwork. Uh, he always has a symbol within his halo. Uh, that is normally a Greek cross. That is, uh, that is sometimes a key row shape, like we saw earlier. And it sometimes also has the Greek characters of Alpha and Omega. Obviously, this is how uh, Jesus speaks of himself in the book of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so those, those symbols end up oftentimes within his halo. But it almost always has a Greek cross or a um, uh, or a key row symbol. Now, the discerning person can look at uh, some of these icons, some of these imagery, especially in the East, and start being able to read, "Well, I see this color. This is, this is what this tends to mean. And there's some variation, but some of the things that are constant, the color gold, which we see uh, very prevalen- prevalently in in the Eastern icons, always stands for Christ. Uh, and so, and so when you're when you're seeing gold uh, with with the image, uh, you are supposed to think. Ah, Christ. Uh, so Jesus himself often gets painted with a lot of gold. Either, uh, like in this painting, um, the top one from the of Sophia, he will be in a gold garment. Obviously his halo is always gold. Um, or he will be in this older image he will, he will have a, a bit of gold in his, uh, in his garment. It's sort of a streak of gold in the midst of his other garments which the other garments are typically almost always red and blue. Blue stands for heaven, the kingdom of God uh, that is not on uh, this Earth. It's a symbol of another everlasting world. Uh, it shows the in the infiniteness of sky, so you see the sky back there, also blue behind Jesus. Um, and then, uh, dark blue, as we see over here, is typically a color of uh, of Mary. Um, another color that we'll sometimes see Mary in, but that we always uh, tend to see Jesus in as well, is red. Red signifies life on earth, and so when you're seeing red contrasted with blue, uh, or if you're seeing Jesus in more blue and Mary in uh, in in red, uh, then then we're thinking Mary is is the earthly life, and and. Uh, and so that's being contrasted with the, the sort of heavenly. Uh, but uh, more often we see her in blue because, uh, because of the significance she is already starting to grow to have in their theology. Uh, uh, something that will continue to grow throughout the Middle Ages Green is the color of eternal renovation, hope, flowering, youth, and nature. In Eastern Orthodox iconography, it's used uh, to denote where life begins. Uh, So you'll see a lot of green in the nativity of Jesus uh, and in the annunciation uh, of his birth to Mary. White stands for divine light, purity, holiness. Uh, it usually clothes uh, people who were who uh, we believe had honest and good lives. Uh, it's also used to depict the robes of angels, shrouds of the dead, and swaddling cloths for babies. And then black. Uh, and we don't have any up here. Um, but black is a symbol of surprise, death and evil. <laughs> black is usually used to depict satanic beings, demons, and uh, the infernal abyss. Um, uh, the The one exception, monks. In blacks are not embodiments of evil. They are monks wearing black. <laughs> um, uh, in, in that case, it's just part of their traditional dress. <laughs> and purple. And one last color that you will sometimes see Jesus wearing is purple. Uh, I don't think we have it here. Uh, although you can sometimes see it overlaying gold uh, is, uh, is Jesus wearing purple and uh, that means royalty. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very common in the Byzantine icons of Jesus and, and of Mary. Uh, it looks like Mary is wearing purple here uh, denoting her as as uh, possibly um, as the uh, queen or queen mother of Jesus, there is one color not used in the Eastern Orthodox icons. That's gray. Uh, it's um, gray was seen as a symbol of vagueness, being being a mixture of black and white. It was vagueness, uh, and so they thought there is, no, there is no place for such a color uh, in the radiant world of religious icons. So, let's see. All right, let us, gosh, I wish I could talk about the highest of you more, but, um, some things just uh, have to uh, be skimmed or wait to the end. But um, does anyone have any questions about what we covered today? Yes, Mark. Where do we get the symbols for the gospel writers from? Uh, the symbols for the gospel writers, I believe that uh, that uh, that is from uh is it ezekiel uh, uh creatures surrounding the throne of god uh and so those uh is, is that Ezekiel I think that's uh, <laughs> i 'm blanking on that but but the creatures surrounding the throne of God which uh, uh and so they were imported into that, okay, so we're going to assign this one to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they've remained uh, pretty consistent uh, since then. Even, I've, I found this fascinating, uh, the uh, Southern seminary, uh, obviously, it's from the Baptist tradition. Baptists traditionally do not use artwork. Uh, You know, very low church, very continental Protestant tradition, um, and the English Protestant after that um, uh, were very iconoclastic. And so in two of the chapels on campus, you will not see even uh, a cross. There are no crosses even in two of the chapels on campus, but in the smallest chapel on campus, there is a stained glass window. And in that stained glass window are the, uh, the images of the four gospels. Uh, the, uh, that is sort of a loophole in the, uh, in the theology, because it's a small chapel. You can only fit about 20 people in it. It's considered personal prayer rather than more corporate prayer. And so imagery can be used in those settings through that theological lens that cannot normally be used in a more corporate setting. And, and so you have a depiction in the windows of, of, the, uh, of the man, the uh, ox, the lion, and uh, the eagle. Yes. Oh, sorry. Either one. <laughs> um, I feel like growing up I was, Yes. Yes, that's that's true, that's true, uh, and uh, of course the Ten Commandments. Uh, you're you're mainly seeing seeing those uh, yeah in 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 Baptist <laughs> depictions. You're you're probably seeing seeing them kind kind of looks like a scroll, but then it has the words written out of all the Ten Commandments, right? Why can't it be you, Right, right, it, but uh, that artwork is still yeah. primarily word based. Right. We we are. Not not as yeah, not as much images as we are showing the text, and the text may have nice lettering. It may it may be calligraphy or or something, but it's still just primarily the text, uh, maybe on a scroll. <laughs> uh, but it is it is re- uh, representational imagery is really downplayed, uh, at least. In the older Baptist tradition, located Yes, yes, that's right. Um, you said in the in the dome in the center of the, the Greek cross. Um, it's covered up. Do we know? Do you know what it is? It, it been exposed before? We've seen it. Do we have any idea what is up there? We have from written record right. okay. what what was up there, and we know from churches that were modeled after okay. uh, the CPO smaller churches that uh, that clearly took it as an example okay. uh, have have a Christ Pantocrator uh, up up there in sort of the center. Uh, round part of the dome surrounded by angels and saints uh, going, going up on all the sides of that. So we have an idea of what that would have looked like, uh, and we know it would have been in a style of art similar to this. We just haven't seen it in 500 years. Um There are even you know rough sketches of it um floating about, but uh if it still exists under there um it's uh it's still being covered for for that for that long so um a a lot of artwork they were able to uncover uh this this painting was uncovered, obviously damaged, um, uh, or some mosaic rather. And, uh, and so there's lots of that there. So uh, if it was not scraped off before it was covered, then it's still under there. Yes, Jacob. Uh, what are the, what's the significance of Jesus' okay uh so so the hand gestures uh, uh, and um, uh, l- uh last time I mentioned this a little bit, so uh, if you want to uh, listen to, to that but uh the one that we see here um, is one version of the sign of the cross and and th- there are a couple of variations of it that you'll see in art. But, um, but this one is very common. So uh, the in- index and middle finger are the two natures of Christ. And the middle finger comes down and crosses the index finger. So it's making a sign of the cross. It's also showing the lower, the bad nature uh, uh, the, the human nature of Jesus. Uh, meanwhile, the, the extended uh, forefinger is, is the divine nature of Jesus also pointing up to heaven, typically. Um, and uh, the, three, the three fingers that meet, the ring finger, the uh, pinky, and the thumb, are the Trinity. You'll see that in a couple of different ways. Uh, you'll sometimes see it uh, almost like an okay sign uh, with, with the thumb and forefinger making, uh, making the two natures of Christ, except they meet in a more pointed way, and the other three fingers uh, together. Uh, as as the sign of the Trinity. Uh, so those are the two most common uh, that that you'll see, and you'll especially see them in uh, in paintings like this, where Jesus is being portrayed as King. Another thing that you will sometimes see, and neither of the uh, uh, none of the three pictures that I have today of Jesus really make this explicit. Sometimes he will be pictured with half of his face looking very serious, very stern, and the other side of his face looking very relaxed, and, and that is to balance out the judgment and grace concept. Like, Jesus is judge, that he is also graceful. Uh, Jason. Jason. The, uh, I, I like to point about the halo being from an earlier tradition. It kind of—I look at the halo and I'm thinking, well, we didn't make that up. What's unique about this is it's Jesus? It's not the halo, you know. We, yes. So I'm wondering about. So I, I guess I'm searching for uh, the hand. Some information on the hand is. Do they? Is there a previous tradition that we're borrowing hands from? Because there's clearly a lot of significance there. If, if, you could, if you could relativize that for me too, that'd be great. There is, um, there is a lot of significance there, but I don't know if we imported that gesture from, from somewhere else or, or not. We obviously, much of our symbolism, we did import from other cultures. We, we saw that last week. Uh, we see that in the halos and stuff this week. And we will see that next week as we move towards the Western Europe and Celtic cultures. Uh, but I don't know exactly where that came from, if if that particular gesture came from a specific place, I know. I guess my question is just
1: hand. I, I get
0: that they are taking the hand and they're trying to say something Christian with the hand, but is the fact that they're using the hand at all? Does that come from something else? I w- I would uh, this is this is a little bit of a guess. I would say so. I do know uh, hand hand gestures were we 're very much part of those cultures, and you know have have a long existence in in just how we behave as humans uh, and so and so my guess is yes, but uh, i can 't be more specific than that. all right next next week, we will talk uh, about. Uh, illuminated manuscripts and so much more. (laughs) Thank you, guys.